I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Amen, right? Amen. What a story. The story of God. Eric was baptized right here last Easter, pretty sure. Well, if you would grab the bulletin that you hopefully received as you came in, I want you to glance at the front cover. If you don't have one, just look over someone's shoulder or you can flip to Psalm 1. That verse on the cover of the bulletin comes from the first psalm, the, the headwaters, so to speak, of the blessings that pour through all of the psalms. The first two verses in the Psalms read, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law he meditates day and night. When the Bible speaks of God's law, it can mean a few things, all of them related. It can mean all that God requires, all that he commands, it can mean the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, meaning the law. It can even mean more, or most narrowly, the Ten Commandments. Regardless of the meaning law has in Psalm 1, notice that the psalmist says, blessed is the person who delights in the law of God. Along with a half dozen or so other men here at the church, I've been called to shepherd you for your good. And part of being one of your shepherds means knowing you. Your strengths and weaknesses, your temptations, your victories, your struggles. And as one of your shepherds, it's my belief that you likely have no understanding of what that phrase means. And I don't mean that to insult you. In what sense are the commandments of God, his law, something to delight him? For many of you, your Protestant evangelical Christian background has not given you the proper framework to make that sentence intelligible. The law of God, you think, is only a hammer to show us our sin. And for others here who are not Christians, perhaps like Eric from a few years ago, You read this and you think the law of God is the apex of God's desire to be a killjoy. So only a weirdo would think of God's law as something good and to delight in. I believe that if you give me 25 minutes, maybe 30, you'll get a taste of what this psalmist means when he says that God's law is a delight. And if you give us the next 10 weeks... You'll have a foundation that will not only help you understand what the psalmist says, but perhaps your heart will sing along with him. That's That's my promise for us. Would you join me in prayer as we begin? Heavenly Father, it is a disjointed morning in so many ways. Snow, ice, weather, do we come, do we not come, do we cancel, do we not come? We're here now. We're here. And so come, work among us. 
Shine your light. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. To be candid with you, my research on the Ten Commandments hit the point of overwhelm about a week ago. So much comes from so many authors, past and present, to contribute to our understanding of the Ten Commandments. If, if you wanted to, and you had the means to do so, you could assemble a library around you on helpful even, not just bad, but even the helpful resources on the Ten Commandments. But if you did that, most of the books would be old. Most of our thinking about the Ten Commandments these days talks about whether they should be on courthouses or not. And that focus, that narrow focus, is not to our benefit. During my preliminary research, I will tell you, one of the most helpful things that showed up, and I want to give you this morning as a nugget that will hopefully carry with us as we go forward, is this. Thinking of the law of God as what I'll call a multi-use tool. Someone else used a similar phrase, and I think it was very, very helpful. A multi-use tool. What's that? Well, that's the generic name. Think specifically Swiss Army knife. Swiss Army pocket knife. Swiss Army pocket knife has half dozen uses, sometimes more. You can open a can, you can cut with scissors, and of course you can cut things. Sometimes it has a screwdriver. It's one tool with lots of functions, hence the name multi-use tool. The law of God is like that. It's doing many things at once. Most obviously, the law of God is prescribing right and wrong. You shall not murder You shall not lie. You shall not covet. You shall not, as we see and read this morning, have other gods before the real God, besides the real God. And in this way, the law of God is first and foremost prescribing right and wrong. Just as a Swiss Army knife is first and foremost a Swiss Army knife. We don't call it a Swiss Army screwdriver, do we? Right? It's mainly a knife. The law of God is primarily prescribing right and wrong. But some of you only, or some of you know this as the only function. And frankly, you don't see the law of God as a pocket knife. You see it as a giant, loud chainsaw designed to mow down a forest of sinners. Law, right? For us, as we move forward, we need to see God's law as also a source of blessing. And for us to see it as a source of blessing and delight, we'll have to see God's law as doing more than this. For example, God's law reveals his heart for society to flourish. In giving good laws, God wants society to flourish. You want people to murder people? No, neither does God. God doesn't want anarchy. He's showing us his desire for society to flourish. And that's a really important function of God's law. Also, the Ten Commandments show us that God has at the center of his being an ethical core. He's not capricious and arbitrary and blown about how how he feels on a certain day. What pleases God today pleases him tomorrow. That's really important. 
You ever had a boss or a dad that what was right today was wrong tomorrow? God's not like that. He's steady. That's a good thing. The Ten Commandments show us this. The Ten Commandments also show us how to live. You might not, at least at first, see this as a good thing. But, but, but just think about this with me for a moment. The Ten Commandments shine light into the wilderness. I know many of you, you, you look out at the, the craziness of this country, the insanity of it all, and you think, I could do this better. And perhaps you could. But imagine how overwhelming it would be to rewrite everything. Like, we give you the keys, go for it. You're overwhelmed tomorrow. When you think about all that's required, and we're going to say more about this in a moment, but you have to think about the context of Exodus and the Ten Commandments. They are, God is constituting a new nation, namely Israel. And they need a way to go forward. They need light in the wilderness. They need instruction, and God in his kindness gives it to them. Also, the law of God shows us our need for Jesus. Without the conviction of the law, we might not see our need for a Savior. And on and on we could go. So do you see what I mean? I hope you can begin to see the multi-use aspect of the law of God. God's law is doing many things at once. And now each week, we're not going to take out each part of the pocket knife and show you all the tools. But we are going to each week hold up a couple of them and say, look at this one. Look at this one. That's for our good. So with all that in mind, okay, all that in mind, all that introduction, we come now to the first commandment. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. The first commandment gives the blessing of the stability of the supremacy of God. That's a mouthful, so I'll say it again. This first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, gives the blessing of the stability of the supremacy of God. When God saves you, if he saves you, just as he saved Israel, He does so from a society steeped in hundreds of gods that are all clamoring for your attention. There is nothing stable about a fully pluralistic society. When every god is capricious and arbitrary and clamors for your attention and you can at any moment fall prey to not doing the right thing to please one of the so-called gods of this age, you'll go crazy. Some of you are going crazy, and this is why your gods at the center and the core of your being are not stable, because they can't be. You might say, but I don't serve gods. I don't believe in any gods, let alone a god, even especially the Christian god, so I certainly don't serve gods. But we all do. That's, that's the assumption of the Bible. The, the first commandment just, just assumes worship. Just assumes service would be another word. The question it's asking of us is, which God or gods will we worship? Consider, consider the words of Jesus. Okay, this is from Matthew chapter 6. Jesus once said, No one can serve two masters, 
either will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Okay, so two masters. But then but look what he does with this. He, he can ratchet up the language. You cannot serve God and money. Matthew 6.24. You'll notice his words speak in the same breath of serving God and serving money. Service language there and in Exodus is worship language. When most of you think of idolatry and other gods and you think of statues and little chubby metal idols and, and the worship of gods can include these sorts of idols, but it's better, it's better to think of that sort of classic idolatry, what I'll call classic idolatry. It's better to think of that, what we think of when we think of idolatry, as the outworking of something deeper within us. When you see people worship statues, it's an outworking of their heart. And it's that focus in the Bible has and the first commandment has. A God, as Jesus understands it, is anything or anyone to whom you give your ultimate allegiance, whom you, in his words, serve. In the words of Jesus, you cannot serve God and money. Serving anything other than God, that is giving your ultimate allegiance to anything other than God, is what the Bible considers as having other gods and breaking the first commandment. So whether you even believe in gods or gods, at least consciously, according to the Bible, we're all doing this. And in this way, we've all broken the first commandment. I, I, I mentioned being overwhelmed about the research available to us in the Ten Commandments, one treasure trove, I'll say, is the reflections that come from a document created in the middle of the 17th century called the Westminster Larger Catechism. The Westminster Larger Catechism is less famous than the Westminster Shorter Catechism because one of them is, well, shorter. (laughs) So it's more famous. People like shorter But a catechism is this series of of questions and answers that have been thoughtfully prepared, designed to teach something. The question, answer, thoughtfully prepared to teach something. And the Westminster Larger larger Catechism, the shorter one is just a shorter version of the same thing. The Westminster Larger, Larger Catechism has been thoughtfully designed to teach a whole bunch of things about Christianity. What you probably didn't know about it, though, is that of the almost... 200 questions in the larger catechism, over 50 of them are devoted to reflections on the Ten Commandments. So more than 25% of what they want to teach about Christianity relates to the law of God. When you put together question 90 through question 149, and you put those words into a Word document as I did this week, it adds up to over 8,000 words, which is twice the length of all the words I'm going to say in this sermon. In the 1650s, they didn't have Netflix. (laughs) That might make them better than us, not worse. So consider, for example, question 91. What is the duty which God requireth of man? And then comes the answer which relates to obeying his revealed will, which then leads into a discussion of the Ten Commandments. Question 98 asks this. Where is the moral law comprehended? The answer, 
The moral law is comprehended in the Ten Commandments, which were delivered by the voice of God upon Mount Sinai and written by him on two tablets of stone and are recorded in the 20th chapter of the book of Exodus. The first four commandments containing our duty to God and the other six our duty to man. So you see it. See how this goes. And there's question 99. What rules are to be observed for the right understanding of the Ten Commandments? I won't read the answer. Question 100. What special things are we to consider in the Ten Commandments? I won't read the answer. Question 101. What is the preface to the Ten Commandments? And there are thoughtful answers to all of these. You can Google it if you want. You can Google it right now because I'm going to read a long answer to question 105. Question 105. What are the sins forbidden in the first commandment? Pause there. You want to Google it. You can see it. I'm going to read this. It won't be on screen. Hopefully you'll be able to track with me. And, and, and remember, we're asking the question, okay, what, how are we all breaking the first commandment? And the Westminster Larger Catechism just explodes with the ways that you and I break the first commandment. Just, just hear some of the ways you break the commandment. Begins in your atheism, that is in denying or not, not having a God. In your idolatry, in having or worshiping more gods than one, or any with or instead of the true God. So, worshiping any gods or having the real God, but then adding other gods with him. That's how you break the first commandment. In not having and avouching him for God. <laughs> it's an old word. We break the commandment in the omission or neglect of anything due to him required in this commandment. So anytime you don't give God everything he deserves, breaking the commandment. Ignorance, forgetfulness, misapprehensions, false opinions, unworthy and wicked thoughts of him. So anytime you think about God as less than he really is, breaking the commandment. Bold and curious searchings into his secrets. So, so God has revealed himself. This is who I am. And then if we press into those, in fact, beyond those, into things he hasn't said that are true of him, and we speculate about those, breaking the first commandment. All profaneness and hatred of God, self-love and self-seeking and other inordinate, that's an important word, inordinate and immodest setting of our mind, will, or affections upon things, and taking them off of him in whole or apart. So anytime shiny trinkets catch our attention and we direct our gaze that is only due to him away, we break the commandment. Vain credulity, unbelief, heresy, misbelief, distrust, despair, incorrigibleness, and insensibleness under judgments. <laughs> Hardness of heart, pride, presumption, carnal security. So when we find our ultimate security in things other than God, we break this commandment. Presumption, tempting of God, using unlawful means and trusting in lawful means. So it's using unlawful means and it's trusting too much in things that are lawful. I'm going to skip a few. Watch this one. Lukewarmness and deadness to the things of God. Anytime your heart is not burning with its zeal and passion for the God who is a consuming fire, we break the first commandment. Praying or giving any religious worship to saints, angels, or any other creatures. Context being 
Of course, the Roman Catholicism, the hundred years after the Reformation here. All compacts and consulting with the devil <laughs> and hearkening to his suggestions. I'm not laughing. I just know that's not probably what you did last week overtly, making a compact with the devil. I know you didn't do that, probably. But it's a way we would break the commandment. But we do do this one. Notice the one right after it. Making men lords of our faith and conscience. Putting too much stock in what someone says, religious or otherwise. And on and on it goes, and I'll stop. We've broken this commandment a lot. There was an article in The Atlantic that seemed to get a lot of attention between Christmas and New Year's. Uh, It's by one of their senior editors. I'd like to read you some of it, actually a lot. Here's the first three paragraphs from her story. I had wanted, I thought, she writes, soapstone counters and a farmhouse sink. I had wanted an island and a breakfast nook and two narrow vertical cabinets on either side of the stove. One could be for cutting boards and one could be for baking sheets. I followed a cabinetry company called Plain English on Instagram and screenshotted its pantries, which came in paint colors like kipper and boiled egg. Plain English cost a fortune. But around a corner in the back of the New York showroom, you could check out the budget version called British Standard. But it cost a fortune too. My husband talked to the architect. My husband talked to the builder. And I kept paring down the plans, down, down, making them cheaper, making them simpler. I nixed the island and found a stainless steel workable work table at a restaurant supply store for 300 bucks. I started fantasizing about replacing the counters with two-by-fours on sawhorses and hanging the pots from nails on the wall. Slowly, slowly I realized I didn't want this kitchen. Slowly, she writes, I realized I didn't want this life. Third paragraph, two sentences. I didn't want to renovate. I wanted to get divorced. So she really doesn't want to renovate her house, she says, but her life. And then she proceeds to throw off all restraint and commitments that she perceives to inhibit her ability to live her true self as she understands herself. Including her commitments to her husband and her children. And she lives in Pennsylvania, by the way, just to make it a little more proximate until she moves to New York. The article goes on, I didn't have a secret life, but I had a secret dream life, which might have been worse. I loved my husband. It's not that I didn't, but I felt that he was standing between me and the world, between me and myself. Then she talks about how she gets a divorce and moves out, and they take the knives and forks and split them up. And in a rather honest moment, she says, breaking up our family, by breaking up our family, I'd taken something from my kids that they were never going to get back. Naturally, I thought about this a lot. There was nothing I could give them to make up for it except maybe a way of being in the world and being open to it and open in it. It's 
what she thinks she's giving them in return. She goes on to talk about how she had to tell her kids about the divorce and why it was happening. Now, the title of the article, which I haven't given you yet, but I'll give you now, is called How I Demolished My Life. And you're thinking, yeah, you did. Your husband, your kids, so many other things, including a relationship with God who loves you and commands you to serve him. And in this way, you might think the article's a confession, except I'll tell you the subtitle. Subtitled, A Home Improvement Story. The author tries as best she can to look the reality of the truth of God or God's in the eyes and the goodness to commitments and vows and responsibilities. She tries to look that in the eyes and yet concludes that not only what she's done is nothing wrong, but she's done something virtuous and beautiful. And in the final two paragraphs, they go like this. Maybe I'm deluding myself. Maybe I'm not free of anything and I just want different objects, a different home, a different, maybe some, someday I'll admit a different man. Maybe I'm starting the same story all over again. For what, you'd ask me. And you'd be right. Final paragraph, two sentences. But I don't think so. I think I'm making something new. This article, to be sure, is extreme. It's a celebration of the God of self before the God of gods, that's for sure. In God's grace, God doesn't allow most people to live this selfishly all the time. And I'm not reading you a ton of the article because it was long. But if we all live this way all the time, the world would fall apart. But I think we see principles in the extreme, which can be helpful. There's nothing stable about this home improvement story. Not for her or anything around her. Anyone around her. And while there seemed to be, as you go in the comments and look below, a lot of pushback about this article online, how selfish it is, I would say this to you. You may not want to admit it. And you might even scoff at the article as you're reading it as ridiculous. But I think there's a lot of, I'll say it this way, this is where a lot of our daydreaming goes. This is where a lot of our fantasies go. This is where a lot of our deep desires tend to linger. If I only, if I could only get a better life in 2022, if I could only get happy, if I could only get a spouse, if I could only get the right spouse, if I could only get my kids to behave, if I could only get the promotion, if I could only stop aging, if, if, if. And for some of you, you think that, yes, God's the source of my life. And yet what you're doing deep down is you're saying, God is the source of my life if he gives me what I want. And I'll continue to do this Christianity thing as long as I get this. And in this scenario, God is not the thing. He's the means to the thing that is the thing for you. What is God to do with us? If you see yourself as a violator of the first commandment, someone guilty, there's good news. Look at again how Exodus 20 begins. We often call this the preface to the Ten Commandments. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. 
God went into Egypt and took on the greatest king from the greatest nation in the world and made a fool of him. If you're an Egyptian, that season when God made nonsense of your gods is the least table time you have ever experienced. As I pointed out in the fall, we often think of these plagues against Egypt as strange and arbitrary, but they're not. You can pair each of the plagues up with the gods or gods or the god or gods of Egypt of various kind of quadrants or spheres. So you have the god over the Nile when God turns it to blood. So the god Hapi, H-A-P-I, I don't know how you say it, Hapi and the goddess Isis who oversaw the Nile. Then you've got the plague of frogs and the Egyptian god Heket who had this frog-like head and oversaw fertility as they imagined it. And so when you hear that, you hear of the nonsense of God putting frogs in the bedroom of Pharaoh. That's what the text of Exodus says. And on and on we can go through each plague, including the God who oversaw the sun, which God defeated for three days of darkness like that. Finally, God kills the firstborn in the line of kingly dynasty, this kingly dynasty, which is God's way of saying, you're not God, Pharaoh, I am. When we understand this, it makes a lot more sense of how to read Genesis chapter 1 and the creation account. We tend to focus on how long was the day. But we do that at the expense of missing what God is trying to highlight. The earth is not God, the moon is not God, the sun is not God, man is not God, God is God. That's an aside. This is the preface to the Ten Commandments, and it reminds us that the real God loves you and redeems you. I've said it before, and we're going to say it again multiple times throughout this series, that the Ten Commandments don't fall on Israel from Mount Sinai with this tablet and the finger of God in chapter 1. They come in chapter 20. What does that say? He doesn't say, look at you. He's not looking at you right now. Fix your life, and then I'll love you. He's not doing that. Praise God for that. Notice again the wording of the preface. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It would be one thing for me to point out how important it is to see this gospel order. You're saved, you're rescued, then you serve him. It'd be one thing for me to be pointing this out, but God says it's important for him to point out. Like, I'm not just doing this. God, as he begins the Ten Commandments, says this gospel order is really important because we forget it so easily. Let me come back, last half a page, to the word I used at the beginning, stability. I'll tell you, I'm borrowing it from a phrase I heard Someone used this fall. I was at an event, a local school, where a leader was talking about the goodness of a Christian education. And the leader was listing some of the blessings that come from a Christian education. And his first comment was the blessing about the stability of a biblical worldview. That is, to look at the world from the posture of knowing God, knowing his wills, knowing his ways, knowing his law and what it means to follow him and be loved by him and to be cared for by him and to let that view of the world shape everything about everything. He said that is the stability of the biblical worldview and that's what Christian education gives. I heard them say that. I was like, yep. And that's a good thing. 
We read in the scriptures, quote, everyone who believes in Jesus will not be put to shame. You want to trust in this, you want to trust in that, trust in that, you can put to shame. Put to shame. You trust in Jesus? You make him the God before all the other gods? I mean, just think how stable your life could be if you had no other gods besides the real God. The good news is that you can. Jesus loves lawbreakers. And with a love that takes away your sin and gives you a power and his presence, I'd say maybe now you can just taste a little bit of why the psalmist might say, blessed is the man, person, whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. When you meditate on this, like you get it all. Before I pray and invite the worship team back up, I'll, I'll mention that next week, as you might expect, we're talking about the second commandment. Here's my challenge to you. Spend a half hour or five hours trying to figure out the difference between what the first commandment prescribes and the second. You do that, you can come back hungry. And we'll put some food on the table. Let's pray. Lord, when we stand in the light of your holiness, we're undone. And yet, because of Christ, and you've taken our sins, our law-breaking, as far away as the east as the west, you remember our transgressions no more, which we can leave here the happiest of all people this morning. That there's no pile of sin in front of us we could amass. That you couldn't conquer and melt. Lord, we thank you for the solid rock of Christ Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.